Welcome to the Academics Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Velasco, and the goal of our podcast is to broaden your knowledge about a vast number of different topics and fields of study. In this podcast, we interview researchers from a number of different institutions across the country to gain insight into the research they conduct on a daily basis. I would like to welcome our guest today, Dr. Glenn Yu, a researcher and physician at UC Davis studying ophthalmology. Glenn received his BA from Columbia University and his MD-PhD from Harvard Medical School. Today, he researches age-related macular degeneration, or AMD, a common eye disease that could lead to blindness. Hi, hi Glenn. Uh, how are you doing? <laughs> Good. How are you? <laughs> Good. Um, so uh, my understanding about your education uh, is that you went to Columbia University for your Bachelor of Science degree, and you got your MD-PhD from Harvard Medical University. So something I'm really wondering is how you balance your time between being a doctor and a PhD uh, researcher. Yeah, so I think one of the things I, you know, when I first came out of college and I'm looking for a career, I really liked science. I really liked doing experiments and thinking about scientific questions, but I really also liked the immediate gratification of taking care of a patient or the idea that I can help people um, in a more direct way, interacting with them personally. So that's one of the reasons why I pursued an MD-PhD career. Um, and it's, you know, the way uh, a lot of these programs work is that it's a combined uh, program where you do four years of medical school and uh, up sometimes as little as three years, as, as many as five or six years of the PhD. So in total, it's a very long track. So when you talk about kind of how do you balance your time, I think, is, you know, when you first start the training, it's pretty well split. They will split you about half and half where you spend a couple of years in medical school, then you go and do your PhD, and then you finish off the last two years of medical school with clinical rotations. And then when you come out and start looking for your job, um, there are some people who end up being very clinical. They just essentially become a doctor and they don't really use their PhD. And there are people who don't really need their MDs either because they're full-time researchers. Whereas I've, I think I've kind of come to accomplish what I've always dreamt of, which is a, kind of a half and half time where I spend about a day to uh, about one to two days a week seeing patients doing surgeries in the health system in Sacramento. And then uh, the last, the other two to three days a week, I end up in the lab uh, where I run a small research lab with a team that I enjoy working with. And that's at the main campus. Right, at uh, UC Davis. Yes, correct. Okay. Um, so, well, I'm interested. You originally, uh, I saw lots of papers published in the early 2000s about uh, neurobiology. I saw that you did, you did publish several papers about neurobiology. And I'm interested to know um, what shifted your focus to AMD, if that was something that you decided at the start of your academic career, if, or if that's something that happened naturally over time. Yeah, I, I'd say, you know, growing up, I was always interested in the brain. And that's why I pursued a PhD in neuroscience. I always felt that in science, there's a, um, there's a spectrum of, of subspecialties from, you know, quantum mechanics and physics to biology and neuroscience. And I always feel that this, the, the frontiers of science are at the two ends, either at the fabric of the universe through quantum mechanics 
and quantum physics to uh, understanding consciousness and how the brain works. And that's why I was interested in neuroscience. And when I did my PhD, um, I worked in a lab that was focused on regeneration because that was really sexy around the turn of the millennium, around 2000 or so, where you know there was a lot of focus on regrowing nerve cells and axons and regenerating spinal cord. And one of the things I worked on was the optic nerve, which is the nerve that connects your eyeball to the brain. And we were looking, we actually would crush that optic nerve and look to see if we can regrow it using different methods. So it, it kind of naturally led me to thinking about the eye. And then I think on the clinical side, I was actually, I actually thought I would be a neurologist because I did a neuroscience PhD. So I really tried hard to convince myself to be a good neurologist and I did all these rotations. But what I found in neurology in the clinical setting is that people don't, we know very little, so very little can be done for patients. Like if you had a stroke, we try very hard to figure out where the stroke is, but there are very little you can do to help people recover. Um, in fact, we often use the phrase diagnose adios in the field of neurology because it's, it's primarily a diagnostic field and not a, a therapeutic field. Whereas I was very intrigued by the eye because the eye is, first of all, it's a window to the brain. You can use high-resolution imaging to see blood vessels, individual neuron cells, photoreceptors um, with various types of things in vivo. So it was a, a beautiful way to access neurological systems. At the same time, on the clinical side, you can do cataract surgery, retina surgery, all these types of microsurgeries that can give people's sight back. And one thing I noticed is that, you know, some people, if you tell them their blood pressure size, they're like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll take care of myself. Or if you tell them that they're eating too many fats in their diet, because they don't feel it. Whereas if someone starts to go blind, they really become concerned and they're very, very invested in their management. So I enjoy taking care of patients with eye diseases because they're part of the team. And by doing small surgeries or injecting drugs into their eyes, I can really help them prevent them from going blind and restore vision. And that's the type of kind of instant gratification I was talking about earlier. Right. The eye injections, those are the intravitreal injections that you are currently, I believe, doing some research on. Yeah, so it, it's, it's crazy. You were talking about AMD. So AMD stands for age-related macular degeneration. And it's one of the leading causes of vision loss in the elderly. And about, you know, up to 20 to even 30% of people above the age of 75 will develop some form of macular degeneration. And in some forms of it, we call it wet macular degeneration because they're abnormal blood vessels that can grow and they can bleed. And when you have a bleed in the eye, it can cause you to go blind. So we actually do injections in the clinic with essentially a needle into the eyeball. It sounds really creepy, uh, but actually most people do pretty well with it. You look away from it, the needle goes through the white part of the eye, and we inject a drug that essentially blocks a growth factor called vascular endothelial growth factor of VEGF, which can inhibit these abnormal blood vessels from growing. And so by suppressing the, the potential to bleed, we can restore people's vision. Right. And there is a published paper that a paper that you published in June of 2020 earlier this year and I believe that paper you were trying to use CRISPR as a treatment for AMD and I was wondering what kind of research supported CRISPR as a treatment and why did you pursue that 
So it's interesting because in our field, um, the drug works. We can inject. So the drugs we inject are currently antibodies that block VEGF. But antibodies will go away with time. It flows out of the eye. The protein, you know, is essentially the drug wears off after about a month. So one of the largest part of the budget for Medicare right now for caring for older people are these people who need monthly injections of a drug that costs on the order of two thousand to three thousand dollars a month. And so the idea I had as a clinician was, wouldn't it be nice to have a treatment that is permanent, essentially not just a treatment but a cure for wet macular degeneration. And so when I joined UC Davis, which was back in 2014, uh, CRISPR was just a new technology that was becoming well known in terms of its application, um, how to apply it. And so the concept is that by using genome editing to modify the DNA, the genomic uh, um, basis of VEGF, so instead of uh, uh, injecting an antibody that blocks the VEGF protein, we actually just knock out the VEGF gene from the damaged cell type inside the eye permanently so that they would never secrete that much VEGF. And so the idea came up and, you know, it was just getting popularized at the time. I was just starting my lab and looking for some interesting ideas to pursue. And so it was a good way for me to test out, you know, I was honestly like buying new equipment, buying PCR machines. So it was a good way to try to test it out. And we ended up being one of the first labs back in 2016 to show that you can suppress VEGF secretion from some cells inside the eye um, in an in vitro setting. And then over the last few years, we moved toward in vivo settings in mouse eyes to suppress uh, a model of the wet macular degeneration. And we actually just got a grant last year to now move toward monkeys. Um, because here at UC Davis, we have access to one of seven national primate research centers in the country. Uh, and the California National Primary Research Center has a lot of resources that allow us to do eye research there. Well, I'm interested. Um, so this, this uh, model organism uh, progression, I guess, is this something that uh, is stepwise going to lead to eventually uh, human trials and clinical trials? Exactly. And I think that's one of the things um, I, I really that really drove me toward pursuing this career as an MD PhD is that I could, I have the skill set to do everything from the bench to the bedside. So, and, and this is actually very common that I would do in vitro studies. It's kind of like my playground. Things are cheap, we can try different things. And then we move to mice. And then if it works in mice, we start to invest the money to then do it in a monkey. And the next step would be to run a clinical trial with a small number of patients. Uh, and in fact, on the clinical side, um, I'm also doing a lot of clinical research where we are involved in either testing new drugs for wet macular degeneration, as well as uh, doing gene therapies and injecting virus that could help change the course of retinal diseases. Wow. Okay. Um, so maybe we could talk a little bit more about the research that you conducted earlier this year, and maybe try to connect it to the research that you're doing now, and then the ones that you're planning to do, I guess, in the future. Um, so the research that you did in June was comparing two different Cas9 orthologs. Um, and the two Cas9 orthologs, I'll specify for the audience, are SPCAS9 and SACAS9 uh, to determine which was the most effective at inhibiting the production of VEGF. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, go ahead. 
yeah, so I think that, you know, whenever you're trying to develop a new therapy for humans, there are various factors you need to worry about. The first is effectiveness. How well does it work? And then the second aspect is safety, how safe it is. Because if you have something that's very effective but not safe, that doesn't work. Or if you have something that's not a, that's very safe but not very effective, that doesn't work either. Right. And so the first step in trying to optimize efficacy is to determine what's the best, what is your best set of tools. And so with Cas9, for those of you in the audience who are not familiar, but Cas9 is an enzyme that is made by bacteria that is used as part of the bacterial immune system against foreign pathogens. So bacteria themselves can get infected by viruses, for example. And so the, these Cas9 enzymes are designed to cut the foreign DNA. Um, and we're essentially utilizing the, we're harnessing the power of this, these enzymes um, in a, to target a specific gene that we want to cut and, or to reprogram them. Uh, but they can be made by different types of bacteria. So SP stands for um, uh, streptin pyogenes, and then uh, SA stands for staph aureus uh, or staphylococcus aureus. So these are different strains of bacteria that makes Cas9. So the question we had was to try to compare two different types. And the reason is that the SP Cas9 is the most commonly used one. But in order for us to give that enzyme in, in a human, we have to deliver it. And in order to deliver it, we have to put that enzyme or the gene or the, um, the vector, uh, carry that enzyme in a, in a vector, a delivery vector, which usually in human gene therapy is AAV, which is adeno-associated virus. So we would essentially use the AAV to carry Cas9 into the eye, but a standard AAV can only carry the SP Cas9, but not the programming, the guide RNA that's used to program it. So you actually end up having to deploy two different types of AAV, one that inserts the Cas9 and the other that inserts the guide RNA that programs the Cas9 to cut VEGF. And so the other one we tested, the SA Cas9, is actually really small and compact. So you can put both into one virus. So the concept was to test two different systems, one that you have to break up the system into two different virus versus a all-in-one single viral platform. And so what we found in that paper that we published this year was that it turns out that even though you would think that an all-in-one, like a single virus, is a lot easier to use, it actually doesn't work as well as the SPCAS9, which had to be deployed in a dual virus, like a two-virus system. Um, so that's kind of what we've discovered in over the last few years is to choose what's the best enzyme that would work. Now, the next step is to focus on safety. And that's a lot of the work that we're actually working on a manuscript that um, we're hopefully, hopefully submitting this year is to, first of all, try to see, number one, whether we can bump the efficacy even a bit more if our enzyme doesn't just cut once, but cut twice. So if you have a DNA, let's say the VEGF gene, and our enzyme is programmed to just cut it in half, the idea is that when it tries to fix itself, it makes a mistake and, you know, and, the, and the gene is, is disrupted, which is what we're trying to do. But what happens if you cut it twice or even three times? You can cut it multiple times, and that would probably increase your chances to increase the effectiveness of your CRISPR gene therapy. But at the same time, the more times you cut the DNA, the more likelihood you are to cause an off-target mutation. Like if there's some gene that's similar to VEGF that accidentally get cut, what happens if it's a tumor suppressor gene? And if you cut that, you end up giving the person a cancer. 
So what we're trying to do with this paper is to demonstrate essentially whether multiple cuts increases the effectiveness, but also can decrease the safety. So we're now trying to find that, you know, that delicate balance between how effective the, the, the CRISPR platform is versus how safe the CRISPR platform is. So I've always been curious about the administration of uh, CRISPR-Cas9 uh, bact uh, bacteria or uh, proteins. I've been wondering, how would you administer Cas9 for, for patients? Is that something that, because you did mention that you have to include, or you, you, there's one version where it's dual vector, where you have to, that's the SP Cas9, where you have to insert both two things individually, whereas... SA Cas9 can be in, can be in, can be incorporated in the same in the same time at the same time. So right. I was wondering, how would you administer this? I'm I'm curious to yeah. know how this works. So there are theoretically different strategies to do it. Um, we're focused on using viral vectors, as I mentioned. AAV is a virus that can carry the genetic material that encodes for the Cas9 and encodes for the guide RNA that's used to program the Cas9. So essentially, the virus is injected into the eye. It infects certain cells. Depending on what promoter you use, it will choose either all the cells or a specific subset of cells to infect. Then those cells will make the Cas9, make the guide RNA, and then that would actually then uh, um, uh, create the genomic disruption. That's the main strategy that we've been focused on because AAV is a well-accepted platform. There's already an FDA-approved gene therapy that was the first FDA-approved gene therapy in humans in general in 2018. Um, and so that's why we're kind of going for the, the tried and true. There are newer ideas that are actually I like better, but we're kind of not ready to pursue those yet. We'll just deliver the protein themselves. Just give the you know, make the Cas9 separately in a test tube and then maybe encapsulate it in a nanoparticle or something that can then fuse with the cells. Because you have to get the enzyme into the cell. So you can't just give protein, you know, just inject protein. It won't get absorbed into the cell. But if you, you can either do a virus to infect the cell or you can use like a nanoparticle or some kind of protein carrying uh, uh, platform that can carry it into the cell. That would work too, but there are limitations. Um, the, the, well, the main pro, the main advantage if you give just a protein is that it just works until the protein gets degraded. And with CRISPR, you really, it's, it's a one-time treatment. So once the enzyme does its job, it, it can go away. And in fact, it's probably safer that way, whereas a viral vector continuously make Cas9, so you might be at continuous risk of it causing uh, uh, damage later. But the disadvantage of giving the protein is that there are no good ways of delivering proteins into cells effectively. And even if you get it into the cell, you also have to get it into the nucleus, right? Because if you're manipulating DNA, the, this protein needs to be carried all the way into the nucleus to do its job. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, you know, we usually try to rely in, in biology, we try to rely on biological systems that have evolved to do the job. So viruses work very well. It infects cells, it gets into the nucleus. Whereas when you artificially engineer a nanoparticle, it tends not to work as well, even though it's potentially safer. So, so that, those are the challenges ahead, is better ways to deliver the CRISPR enzyme as a protein, as opposed to using a virus to deliver the, the genetic material. Okay. Um, 
So I know that CRISPR and intravitreal injections, eye injections, are not the two uh, only ways of preventing AMD. Um, I'm, I, I think that I heard that you are currently researching AREDS2, the, which is, I believe, a supplement that you can use is another treatment for AMD, or I guess a preventative treatment that doesn't, doesn't work to entirely prevent AMD, but it does prevent it for some time. Um, is that some uh, somehow related to your re research on CRISPR? Um, it's not directly related. So our research program has several arms. Um, on the simple side, you can think of it as the basic science arm uh, and the clinical arm. So we have uh, research in um, everything from artificial intelligence to uh, a lot of advanced ocular imaging uh, to understand how by looking at, as I, you remember I talked about how you can take use cameras to look at high resolution imaging, to look at blood vessels and individual cells in, in, in a live eye. So we can do that with human patients and understand the pathophysiology of EMD. And that's some of the publications we had over the last few years. And then on the basic science side, we're using mice and monkeys as kind of like a, a stepladder to slowly test new therapies that we can then test in a mouse and the monkey before we apply it to humans. So I think on the basic science side, we're understanding the new, we're developing new therapies. And then on the clinical side, we're trying to understand pathophysiology by doing a lot of this imaging work. The term you used, AREDS, actually stands for the Age-Related Eye Disease Study. Um, it's actually a very large study that um, uh, many years ago, actually it was the first trial that the National Eye Institute conducted because it has an accession number of like NCT00001. Um, and uh, it was to understand whether you can take um, vitamin supplements to suppress or to prevent the conversion of early to intermediate macular degeneration into the wet form that I talked about, the one where you actually develop these abnormal blood vessels. And it was found that those vitamins did work. It was a combination of these antioxidants like vitamin C, E, zinc, copper, um, and those have been shown to work. And what you've probably read about is not so much my research on AREDS, the vitamin, but the data set. So the, the study, one of the great things about the study besides showing that the vitamins can prevent macular degeneration progression is that they took a lot of pictures of a lot of people's eyes. And we have over 3,000 images that you can actually apply. Anyone can do this um, to the NIH because it's public domain to get access to the data. And we're using those image data to A, understand the role of how certain blood vessel parameters. Right now, I actually have an undergrad um, from UC Davis doing some work with us on understanding um, uh, what the role of the blood vessels are in macular generation by looking at these pictures. And then the other thing that's interesting is our collaboration with some uh, uh, vision scientists in Berkeley using artificial intelligence to analyze these fundus or retinal photographs and trying to see if there are ways to predict not just macular degeneration, but a variety of different diseases. In fact, in 2016, Google actually published a paper that showed that just by looking at a fundus photograph, uh, a picture essentially of the retina inside the eye, they could tell you whether how old the patient is, whether it's a man or a woman, whether they have high blood pressure. It's actually amazing what artificial intelligence can do with these retinal images. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to know, a lot of our listeners are also going to be pursuing medicine and a PhD degree even. 
I'm wondering what kind of advice would you have for these students pursuing uh, medical school and or a PhD? Um, I think, you know, I think my best advice, probably just from my own experience, is whether or not to pursue a combined degree versus one or the other. Um, I think most pre-meds are pretty, you know, have a good reason for why they want to become a doctor. And most PhDs or, or pre-grad schools um, students are uh, know why they want to go into science, right? They, you know, either it's a love for science or a love for medicine. But why would you ever do, why would you put yourself through double the pain <laughs> to, 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 to do, you know, eight to 10 years as an MD, PhD before you get a real job? One thing I've kind of realized as time goes on is that, you know, all of life is training. Even when you graduate, there's still residency, there's fellowship. And even as a, as a early faculty in the first few years, you're always learning. And in fact, what drives me and I think a lot of people is this novelty. I think, you know, some, we always used to think of the job as like, once you get your job, that's like your career and you're settled, but you know, people don't get, aren't happy just be doing the same thing over and over. And so we are always challenged. Um, we're most excited and we have most gratification or satisfaction with our jobs when there's constantly change that presents challenges that could potentially be fun. Um, and so what I uh, realized, I think, um, doing the combined program, obviously there are financial advantages doing a combined MD-PhD program. Uh, the NIH funds them so that they pay for your entire med school. So I graduated with no debt. And in fact, I had savings uh, from the, 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 the um, stipend you get as an MD-PhD student. And over the course of the eight years, I you know, bought a small condo that I um, uh, put money into. But from, a, from an academic standpoint, I think you really learn to see, you know, the, both aspects from the development of treatments um, as a PhD student to the application of treatment as a doctor. And what I really like, I think, you know, sometimes you can't really imagine what life would be like where every day is different. I can tell you it's extremely exciting. I can wake up one day and do surgery and have patients put their eyesight in my hands and you know I take care of them and they're very happy and thankful. But on the another day, I can see 50 patients in clinic um, and you know and and hear about their stories and give them treatments. And then on another day, I will be like, okay, I, I was exhausted with seeing 50 patients yesterday. Now I can roll into lab and hang out with the lab and you know organize lab meeting and plan out interesting projects. So I think the ability to have a career where you can wake up every day with something different and not be kind of a numbed or uh, uh, very uh, stressed about just one doing the same thing over and over, I think this is extremely gratifying. So I would urge people who um, are looking at careers um, to think about what's what drives you and whether you want to find a job where you're constantly faced with different challenges. And I think being able to do a job where um, you can try different things and do different things all the time, um, I think it's very exciting. All right. Well, thank you, Glenn. I appreciate you coming onto the podcast and sharing a bit about your education and some of the research that you're doing right now and will be doing in the future. Yeah, of course. That was fun. All right.